Welcome to the Ag Emerge podcast brought to you by Ag Solutions Network. We're here to move the ag paradigm forward by helping you regenerate your soils using new ideas, research, and emerging technologies. Get ready to improve your soil, your crops, your livestock, and your family's livelihood. I'm Kim Sheese. And I'm Monty Bottens. And we're your hosts. Thanks for joining us. Well, thanks for joining us today. You know, Ag Emerge is brought to you by Ag Solutions Network. And one of the things we think makes us unique is that we are the boots on the ground helping growers navigate a systems approach to regenerative agriculture. Today, we discuss what that looks like with our guest, Silas Rosso. Silas is president of California Ag Solutions and one of the member dealers that makes up Ag Solutions Network. Silas and his team focus on seeking out the very best practices for California growers, and much of that focus comes from his love of agriculture and technology. We're going to discuss some of the paradigm-shifting changes they've helped implement and some of their mojo for making it work. So welcome, Silas. You know, we're excited to have this conversation today because, um, you know, I'm in a lot of meetings and events where I hear people talking about needing technical advice about how to implement all these things we're talking about with soil health. And I always think about you guys being boots on the ground and really providing that technical assistance and constantly seeking new ideas that are working, that are helping growers to adopt some of these practices. And so, I would love to hear a bit of your story. What brought you here to this spot of where you're working in this industry? And I know you're going to tell us maybe a little bit of your why, why you like to do this. And actually, you love to do this. It's a passion of yours. So Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me on the podcast. It's kind of fun to just be able to talk to you guys and kind of talk about the you know the story that I've gone through and you know how it's constantly been moving forward. And just the direction that I see um, agriculture here in California, because, you know, you, we all talk about California being a challenging place to do business. But the neat thing is, is that also provides so much opportunity um, with these challenges. So um, my story really goes way back to being a little kid, um, just being the gopher for my dad, handed him wrenches and tools and out in the field when we're fixing tractors. And so it was just one of those passions that I had from the very beginning of just seeing how you can take a seed, a plant and watch it grow and produce something. Kind of like just as humans, we enjoy watching something grow and produce even within ourselves, our kids, offspring, all that fun stuff. So it's just been really interesting to just see how things have moved forward um, in California, just in my life. A lot of different things have uh, inspired me, challenged me, frustrated me, but all of them have made something um, move in a direction that, you know, is getting uh, better, I guess you could say, with agriculture. I think there's a lot of frustration with, you know, what our outcomes are as far as regulatory policies and all that from California. But I look at that as something that, you know, how do we do the best that we can do? with these limited resources, limited opportunities that some might see, but really look at taking what's out there, what these uh, researchers have created or understood, and how do we take that and actually take it to a grower and make their operation better, make their lives of their employees better, and actually have better margins to play with. It's exciting. It's fun. I think, so where would you like to start? Well, I think one of the things that our listeners would like to hear is your your farm experience as far as, um, you know, in a farm manager and you farm now yourself, uh, some some acres and, and with a partner there. And I think uh, having that actual, it's one thing to provide the leadership to other people, but I think something that makes you unique, Silas, is your, your farm management and actual farm operation experience. You might share some of that with our listeners. Yeah. So when I um, graduated Cal Poly, um, was that 2005 or so, um, I went straight to a large farming operation of about 15,000 acres. And so it was mainly growing dairy forages for um, seven different dairies. Um, It was a big family operation. So it was a pretty neat, just coming out of school with, you know, kind of the 
you know, you're, you think you're really smart and you think, you know, a whole bunch coming right out. Cause you've got all these great classes that you took and you're young, you, uh, don't know what you don't know. And so jumping right into it, it was boy baptism by fire. Cause you had 15,000 acres that you're trying to figure out how to manage uh, the logistics of planting, harvesting, irrigating all these different operations. And so it was a blast because it was just overwhelming and I'm addicted to like just chaos, I guess. And it was a great opportunity to learn a whole bunch, but at the same time, it was one of those things that was overwhelming. And so it was getting your PhD in farming real quick. And, um, I saw a lot of things that, you know, you can do better. And I think that's one of the things that drives me is uh, how do you make something better, more efficient. It takes a lot of time and effort to understand it first because you got to understand it. And so that's what that process was, is uh, learning and understanding, you know, why the operation does certain things. And that's something that I move forward into everything we do as a team here at California Ag Solutions is we've got to understand why people are doing things that they are currently doing um, just to understand, okay, what has been the history and why do people actually make the decisions that they do? And learn from that and then be able to kind of have a baseline of, hey, can we move forward? What direction and what are going to be the best steps? Because it's kind of overwhelming if you just jump in there and think, oh, yeah, I can change this, but have no idea what their history is. Plus, just like you, our history. Plus, uh, when you were farming, I remember you've told me, too, it's interesting that, you know, it's one thing to, to manage this 15,000 acres, but it's a whole nother thing with all the people that are involved. As far as mm -hmm. everybody who you're in charge of, right, downstream from you, making sure things happen in the way that they're supposed to and quality control and those things. But then it also comes from your leadership, the ownership group, as far as multiple voices involved and maybe multiple, multiple different directions or visions for where they want to go. So that, that created some, some interesting um, chaos factors, you referred to it. But, oh, yeah. So you, you've had that, that side of it. But then after that, you went to work for your uh, small family farm, your your wife's farm, uh, there uh, next door. And uh, how how much of a, a change was that? And kind of kind of going from overdrive and slamming into uh, a, a totally different gear, huh? Yeah, it was actually a really good opportunity to um, have to learn how to switch gears from that. So yeah, going from a large operation where you know. I was fairly young, thought I knew a whole lot and jumping into a family run operation that was significantly smaller, but they still had quite a bit of um, almonds. And so jumping into that and then working, I'm quite literally, I was the son-in-law. So jumping into that and understanding their operation and it was a different scale, things done very differently and switching gears was pretty interesting, especially when you're newly married working with your wife side by side and going from where I was on the large operation as essentially the windshield farmer, where I did everything on the laptop, pretty much delegated all the responsibilities, then jumping into the seat of a tractor and mowing and spraying and fixing things and having to irrigate myself. So all the things that I had told people what they needed to do, now I actually got to do those things myself when I worked for my in-laws. So it was kind of a funny um, progression of skills, I guess you could say. So you had weekly team meetings with yourself? Absolutely, on the tractor. <laughs> yeah, that was kind of interesting. If you drive by and you saw Silas talking to himself on the tractor, you, you knew that uh, he was having one of his meetings, right? Yep, it was quite entertaining. I also did not have a cab on that tractor. So driving through an orchard without a cab can be a dangerous thing, but it was Definitely kept my head on a swivel. <laughs> That's for sure. At least you got good vitamin D. I think sometimes, yeah. uh, you know, it's interesting that we forget how much of farming is not agronomic. It's, you know, that whole human equation and relationship equations and all of those kind of things that go into decision making as you're doing it, whether it be those large operations or the family. I think sometimes even the family ones are almost harder because there's all those dynamics. When you work as a, a team in a larger operation, it's people that you work with. But when you're working in a, 
in a family operation, it's people that not only do you work with them, but then you need to go have dinner with them on Sunday afternoons. And so it offers a whole nother level of dynamics. So you really learn how to how to get along. Yeah, you definitely do. And I think that was something that I needed to uh, mature quite a bit in that area. You know, being in my um, early 20s, um, then getting married and then working for my wife's family, there was a lot of maturing that I needed. And I think it's one of those things where I can look back on it now and I really see that was kind of the progression or the development of my why. Why do I want to do what I do? And what motivates me to continue to push forward? And it was really more about the relationships because I'm naturally an introvert. Like I don't really thrive being in large groups of people. But one of the things that I've noticed over time is through all these different experiences, challenges that I have more passion working with people and really helping them improve their abilities and improving, you know, where they're at in their skill set. Because I... That's the joy of, I think, running CAS right now is we have a team of, what, 16 people. And I get the most joy out of helping each and every one of them do better and improve where they're at. Really, is that's the fun part. And it's just like soil. I, as weird as it sounds, I look at each one of them as much like a different field um, and kind of relate, you know, what are the different challenges that a field has? What are the different challenges people have? Um, what do they need as far as fertilizer? Uh, what kind of cropping plan do I need for each person? So it's kind of funny how we're all, I guess, a piece of dirt. <laughs> soil, soil, Silas, because yes, soil. Well, uh, if they no, were not in the right place, dirt, they're dirt, some are uh, soil. right? So a soil out of place is dirt, and uh, we really don't want erosion in the team. So we want to keep all of our soil fertile and growing. And I I think that's interesting. The growing experience is not only with our customers, but it's with our team. And it's fun to watch the CAS team and how they've grown together over time and how they've evolved in their skills and roles over time. And it's, it's fun to see, um, especially with people who get into their second or third year and just really, it really sinks in then to know, what they, um, what our mission is about and the difference that they're making and what their role is that they're playing. So pretty, pretty fascinating. Um, mm-hmm. Talk a little bit about, uh, before we dive a little more into the CAS thing, talk a little bit about your farming today and, and uh, all the perspectives from being a, a manager to family farm to, you know, doing the, the crop consulting business. And now today you're, you're farming, making all the decisions and writing the checks for those decisions and how that's kind of come around full circle. So what's interesting is, you know, the story that really goes all the way back to me first um, meeting Monty and knowing what, you know, he was doing as a business was um, when I was at that large operation, 15,000 acres, and I was trying to look at ways to improve how we were growing corn. And we were the conventional um, corn silage growers, you know, um, doing all the dirt work, seven to 10 passes, to make the field prep ready to plant corn. And so I was looking for opportunities to be more efficient with manpower, the equipment, diesel, time. And so a a neighbor or someone else that a lot of the owners that I worked for knew, um, they were doing strip till and kind of starting with that. So using an Orthman strip tiller and then planting uh, corn into that strip. And so I was like, okay, uh, let's jump into... uh, giving that a shot and doing some test plots. And um, Monty was actually the one that was working with that other customer. And uh, so I had gotten Monty's number, called him and got him in the truck and drove him around for about what, two to three hours. And he always says he was trapped that I wouldn't let him out because there was all these things that hostage hostages, hostage. not trapped. And, and just yeah. to let you know, Silas uh, enjoys the California heat and does not run the fan in his truck with the windows up when we're driving around for the two to three hours. So uh, well, it was it was definitely to, uh, an interrogation uh, technique. Yeah, well, to be clear, the air conditioning was broken on the truck and it was a ranch truck. So you know how those things happen. <laughs> it wasn't going to spend the $1,000 to fix it and then later find out it was only a $15 part. But anyways, that's another story. Um, so yeah, as I took Monty around the whole operation, um, he was, I found something very interesting, um, right away is how he communicated and the things that he was bringing up 
as far as uh, you know how I saw and perceived problems on the operation, he instantly was bringing solutions and understanding like the science side of it. And that was something that you know no other consultant or no other salesperson had ever brought to the table for me. And I found that very intriguing and interesting. And I didn't even know Monty was really a salesman until probably our, what our second or third time we met. So that you know perception of who was helping me or how he was helping me was very different than what I was used to. I was always used to being sold something as a farm manager. So, you know, instantly your guard is up and it's like, great, what are you selling? How much money do you want for that? And how many times are you going to call me on the phone to annoy me? That's the typical thought of, you know, what a farm manager thinks of a salesperson. But Monty actually put himself in a completely different category. And so working with Monty on some of these projects, as far as, you know, how do we make better quality corn silage, more of it. Um, he was the only one that was really providing a direction. So that was kind of fun for me because uh, it was very different than what I was used to. And so as I got to see how that was done, that was also kind of around the same time, I guess you could say I was retiring from that position with uh, the large operation and going to my in-laws. And so, and then in the event, when I was working for my in-laws, I was there for a, a short time and then they actually sold the property. And so someone came along, offered them a certain amount, and they said, yep. And so I was kind of out of a job. Um, I've been working for my in-laws, and they sold. And I kind of thought, well, do I want to go back into farm management? And I was like, well, I know what the time commitment is. I know the direction that is. I enjoyed it. I was good at it. But it was one of those things. It's like, oh, let's see what other things I can challenge myself with. And so that's when I had been talking to Monty and he had at the same time I was working for my in-laws, he was also trying to get me to work for him part-time. I was like, eh, Marty working for my in-laws, that's eight days a week, 25 hours a day. So I have no free time here. <laughs> and so getting the opportunity um, opened up when they sold and it's like, okay, let's explore this option with uh, California Ag Solutions uh, working for them. So I did. Um, I don't know why they hired me. I guess they were desperate. They just needed someone to fill that position. So hired me and uh, yeah, started being in a role of sales, which I had no training. I had no idea what I was doing in the very beginning. Now I can tell Monty all this stuff because yeah, I was so ignorant to the whole process of how to help somebody, but I knew what I didn't want to be, right? I knew what I didn't want to be like in sales. So I kind of use that as, I guess you could say, almost an anti-mentor um, or an anti-position of how I would do things. So learning how to help people in that regard of just, um, you know, pushing forward and bringing new ideas to the table was something that was um, very different. Did that and started to really uh, honestly get frustrated because, you know, having that mentality of, you know, in management, you kind of dictate what needs to be done, explain. And at that time, I had no idea what leadership was really about, like leading by example, or that servant type leadership, it was more that, hey, you have to do this, or I'll just find someone else to do it. That was that mentality of um, leadership. And so I learned a lot there because, it, you know, you don't do that with customers, you don't do that with your family, you don't especially don't do that with your spouse, um, to be able to have a healthy relationship. And then really any other part of your life, you don't dictate those kind of things, you really have to lead with um, helping them see the direction that needs to be attained and working together uh, to kind of create that solution. So kind of working backwards in my life, you know, learning things that maybe I should have learned earlier, but then going, uh, getting frustrated later in life uh, to really move that forward. That was kind of a, I don't know, a neat experience um, to look back on, but frustrating at the moment. But man, I yeah, I was frustrated because I couldn't get people to do all these great things that, you know, I was looking at with research of like, hey, we can grow better quality corn. We can do all these better things. But, you know, who wants to listen to, I think at that time I was what, 26, 27 year old. I was excited, but man, I didn't have the wisdom and the understanding. Yeah. Moving forward a little bit through that whole experience of just getting frustrated over and over. And then I just realized it's like, you know, I'm not trying to change people. Um, I really need to change myself and how I address people, how I help people and how they perceive what I'm bringing to the table as far as um, leadership. So that's really when I think I got my, the why 
really refined in my own mind of like, hey, I really just want to help uh, people get better. And I want help. I want to improve the situation. So I really looked at it as an efficiency thing. So how do I improve efficiency? And ultimately, the best um, description is it's stewardship. So how do you take these resources, abilities, and opportunities and make the best out of them? How do you help people, fields, all these other things that you know, you're know you surrounded with and make them to the best of your ability thrive? And that was something that was really exciting because then once I started to see that, how do I make things thrive? That was exciting because now all of a sudden you've got people that are all frustrated so when you open your eyes, you really everyone around you is frustrated or challenged in some regard. You just have to be able to ask the right questions to be able to open up that um, emotional box or that challenge that someone might be going through and then just be able to say, okay, let's do this. Let's look at that from this perspective and be able to work together on that. And then that's a lot of what I see on our team, but also a lot of what I get to see, you know, in farming operations, I get to see so many different large operations, mid-sized operations and small operations, and they're all managed so differently. But the one common factor is it's all human. We're all people. We all have a lot of the same tendencies, the same challenges, the same hangups. And so you get to work with a lot of the same base material and you just get to help people uh, see things from maybe a different perspective and you get to learn from other operations. So and that's what's fun. You've just revealed the secret sauce of, of California Ag Solutions there. So I hope hope nobody's listening, you know. Oh, they're but, not. You know, soil they're health. already tuned out by now. <laughs> but soil health, you know, uh, contributes to plant health, like we've talked about, plant health to animal health or to human health and human health to ecosystem health. But it starts with that human element first in order to make that change within the appropriate cultural context and uh, friends, neighbors, peers, coworkers, um, you know, ownership uh, groups, those kind of things to make that switch to soil health. And it's uh, really an appeal to stewardship, like you said. The other thing I thought was really interesting that you pointed out there was when you went into sales, you, you didn't know what sales was, but you knew what you didn't want it to be. And I am with you 100%. I I just get so annoyed with terrible salespeople because, quite frankly, uh, they give the process of sales a bad name, okay, because there's nothing inherently bad about sales. It's just like money. There's nothing inherently bad about money. It's just a matter of how you use it. Uh, It's the same way as uh, how are you valuing the other person's time? You know, are you there to create value for the farmer, or are you there to line your pocketbooks? Because if if you look at, if you always focus on the farmer and how can I improve their value? How can I improve their efficiency, like you said? How can I improve everything that they're doing? How can we improve their soils? If you focus on that, everything else works. You know, right. that's how you make the deliveries. That's how the 16 people stay employed and, and more people are added to the team is if we're just, if we're doing the right thing in the field, everything else is falls into place. So that's, that's really interesting looking at it from a perspective of what you didn't want versus what, what, you know, knowing what you, you did want. So, uh, yeah, interesting, interesting start. So this whole concept of, of getting people to think differently about their soil starts with, you know, starts really in the mind, right. Of the, of the person. So when you're talking to somebody and let's say some of our listeners here, uh, we're going to have people who are, you know, whole hog and, and doing everything and like, Hey, I'm on step five, we're step six, you know, let's, let's get going. Then you're going to have other people listening here. They're like, okay, somebody said I should listen to this podcast. And I guess maybe, you know, I don't want to really quit ripping and starting in my field 24 times a year. And you mean, I got to, I got to consider there's biology in the soil and not put on 500 units of nitrogen. Um, talk a little bit about that process that you go through when you meet somebody for the first time and, you know, think of a, maybe a few customers in your head from that first time you met until 
maybe where they're at today, wanting step six, if you will, or soil health principle six or seven or eight or ten. Um, what yeah. what that process looks like and what the rewards are you've seen for them and rewards that you've seen for yourself. Mm-hmm. I think one of the things that's probably been most helpful that has been um, something that can move someone through this whole process and get them motivated the quickest is once I myself have understood like my why or my purpose, what motivates me, I got to essentially get that uh, person who's interested in making a change for them to discover what's their purpose, what's their why, what drives them. Because if they're just driven by just making money and nothing else, that's going to be empty. Over time, they're going to get frustrated because, you know, they'll achieve that, but they're not going to achieve much more. So what's their cause? What's their drive? What's their purpose? And so if you can help them discover that and get somebody that truly has a desire to change, that is the key thing. Because, you know, the the frustrating thing when I was first starting off is um, I wanted to win every single situation where I was getting a customer. Like I wanted to be successful every single time. And so it was frustrating anytime I had a hiccup or a challenge that was outside of my control. So over time, I realized I have to do a better job of choosing the people I work with that also want to achieve something better instead of just going through the motions. And there's a lot of people out there that are just stuck in the motions. They're in agriculture because they've been in agriculture their whole life. It's been a generational thing and they've lost sight of where they want to be, what they want to achieve. And so, you know, I look at that as an opportunity maybe to work with them and maybe redefine um, what they want to do and then have a purpose-driven cause that they can go after. The other thing is um, when you do find someone who has that cause, that's exciting because right away you're just, you're running instead of having to crawl. And so you can really move fast. And so that progression of through these different, you know, the soil health principles, you can quite literally go one, two, three, four, and then all of a sudden jump onto number five within that first year, second year. And so some people just move at different paces and others don't, but you have to really evaluate, you know, where's this person's uh, desire to move? Are they going to be a quick mover or a slow mover? It's just like kids. I've got four of them. So I've got four very distinct, unique personalities, different ages, different maturities. And I have to treat each one of them a little bit differently so that they can grow to what they need to be. I can't treat my 11 year old like I do my 17 month old. That's going to be frustrating for him. And yeah, that will not be fun. But there's a lot of those little things that, you know, you have to understand where they're at, what they're wanting to achieve. And I think that's something that for me, um, even for my own farm, uh, it's one of those things where I want to be able to be doing the things on my farm that I'm recommending to other people. So I can't, I'm not going to be the kind of guy who says, Hey, you should do this, but I sure wouldn't. Um, I'm going to be doing things that I'm telling people that I believe in. And when they see that I believe in it, then there's a passion that they see that just bleeds out of every pore that I have and they get excited too. And so I can take them to something where I have made mistakes and say, Hey, yeah, I made this mistake. Don't do what I did. You learn from my mistakes. Um, So it's been fun to be able to have every single, you know, challenge that they might be going through because I can relate and I can pretty much say, yeah, this is what we have to do. I can foresee problems a lot quicker. And there's just a trust factor. They trust someone who's doing it alongside them. I, I think that's great. And, and I, I think it's so important that um, you're willing to try and do those things as well. I think that's a lot of what um, makes this different is because you're trying and doing these things that you're suggesting because we know that there is no silver bullet. So we've got to try all these different things to see what works in each different scenario. But I'm curious about as you are making these changes with your growers and they're seeing the things that are happening in their soil. What has impressed you the most about, one, what has happened in the soil itself or the results that you see? And then number two, what has been the grower's feeling or excitement or what they, what impressed them the most about it? I think what's 
impressed me the most, but also kind of blown me away with a lot of these principles that we're trying to implement in soil improvement is the less you do, the better things get. Um, so you think when we do tillage, when we do all these other applications of things, um, there's a lot of things that we actually are doing a detriment to the soil. Um, so you look at all the tillage that I'm so used to with my past. Now there's certain things it's like, Hey, if you've got compaction layers or hard pan layers that truly need to be removed, yeah, that needs to happen. But the reality is, is when we look at no-till, um, winter forage that's being planted or minimum tillage as far as the strip till the soil just continues to get better the less we do to it so the fungal communities get better the bacterial communities get better stronger and things work more like they were designed to in the beginning and so it's one of those things that you know we want to see things happen right away we're the microwave generation where you push a button and you want to get it right away so with soil health it's you know, we think like, hey, if I do this one thing, I plant a cover crop or I do this one application of this bug in a jug, whatever it is, all of a sudden we're going to get these huge improvements and everything's going to be back to the way it should have been originally. Reality is, is it does take more time, but it does make a huge change really quick. Within the first few years, you can see huge changes in water infiltration, soil um, bouncing back and actually cycling, cycling nutrition through, um, the sodium gets, um, just pushed out of the way to where the plant has a completely different way of operating than what it did before. So you can see results within two years quick, even the first year you see a lot of stuff, but we really start seeing some major changes in years two and three. Um, and it's just something that, you know, we step back from a lot of the management practices that we've been so used to. We really see a lot of quick improvements um, when we're just watching things happen. And you have to know what to look for. And I think that's the neat thing with what we do um, is this leadership in this area is, you know, boots on the ground is helping people see what it is that we're looking for. Because you don't know what you're looking for if you just walk out there and have no understanding of the system, have no understanding of how things grow, how the soil works. But as we teach people and they get excited about that, then they're eyes start to see it. So we have to tell people what to look for. And once they see that, then it's the buy-in is just awesome. The people get excited. I, I think that's excellent. I mean, you brought up so many uh, great uh, areas there because, first of all, I think about with the tillage, and and I think nothing, you know, this is kind of a timely statement, but you know, we're watching all these hurricanes roll in, and when a hurricane rolls in, it decimates the infrastructure, power, and and uh, phone, and you know, all of these different things that that get decimated when a hurricane rolls in. Well, we're doing that every time we till a field, we're creating a hurricane in that underground community, and then they're constantly rebuilding. So they're almost like trying to get back to a level playing field, where when you implement these soil health principles, you're actually, you've rebuilt the infrastructure, and and now things are being added to that infrastructure. Like not only do you have this great roadway, you know, and all of this. Oh, so yeah, no, you're exactly right. Cause that's <laughs> the example, you know, we use a lot with um, explaining it to people because they get systems, they get infrastructure. So we talk about a house, the same thing. So you've got electrical system, you've got plumbing, you've got, you know, the waste, it's like uh, internet, you've got all these different systems. And yeah, once you destroy it, it takes time to rebuild. Yeah, yeah, I think that's uh I think that's really key. We don't realize uh what what we've been undoing every single year that the plants and the biological activity need to rebuild. The other thing you said though that I think is so key and you said it early on when you first began that you when you were um, just right out of school and you were doing all that farm management that you were doing it from a windshield view. Is that kind of how you said it? You were mm -hmm. managing from yeah. the windshield. And I think that is another key thing that is so different is, and Monty said it in a couple of different podcasts, but the most important things that you can add to the field is your shadow and your shovel, you know, mm -hmm. where you're actually out there. And then we are redefining what success looks like. 
Right. It's not just yield. It is a bunch of different things. And and when we talked with Jay Watson from General Mills a, a couple of podcasts ago, you know, he was talking about what do those measurement outcomes look like? So we're having to redefine what success is. And it it's not just, as I said, yield, but there are a lot of levels of success that we can see. And we also can see that the rate of those things that are happening, as you mentioned, are happening a lot quicker than we've been taught in the past about how they would happen. Yeah, Kim. And, you know, one of the things I think think that's interesting is the mindset portion of this is if we try to extract every penny that we possibly can out of today's crop, you know, that is what the current system is all about. So what we're trying to accomplish and and what Silas and his team is trying to accomplish is doing the maximizing the productivity today. But what are the practices that we're doing today and how will that affect next year's soil condition and or irrigation status and irrigation ability and, and ability to grow a crop next year and the following year and the following year. So regeneration is not just sustainable. Sustainable implies maintaining, but still you know, sustainable really isn't sustainable. Regenerative means building upon, making better for subsequent crops. So if we can make profitability today uh, equal to or improved with a path forward for making tomorrow's and a decades from now soil better, you know, over time that, that begins to widen. And you've seen that, Silas. I mean, over time, how soils are... You've got some almond orchards down to the total amount of applied nitrogen would would shock people. Right. It's minimal. And I think what's really interesting about all of this is, and I think this is why companies like what we do, and there's very few out there that really look at this as a system. And I think there's companies that love to sell a single service or a single product. And, you know, they might do really well at just that specific thing. But as we're moving into this age of where the consumer wants to know more of what's happening to their food or what things are happening in the field, they want to understand, you know, like are things being done to what they think is right? And there's a lot of misinformation out there. There's a lot of um, money or a lot of just opinions and not a whole lot of it comes from an understanding of being in the field. And, you know, not many people have a tie, a direct relationship to agriculture. And so when people are looking at this stuff, they're just Googling and reading stuff on the internet. And so that can be a little bit, you know, frustrating because, you know, when people look at what regenerative agriculture truly is, they don't really have a good picture of it's an entire system that has to work together. They think it's like, oh, you just have to change this one thing in tillage or, hey, you don't spray a chemical or you don't do this. And that's the one thing that, you know, we love helping people see that this is an entire massive system that there are so many different components. It's, you know, tillage, chemical applications, irrigation, weather, the equipment that you actually buy to perform harvest, every single thing plays a role and it affects the other parts of the business. And so when we can help people see that this is a system and that one little thing that we do with a biostimulant or an application of micronutrients or macronutrients that can directly affect all the way into harvest, how it's harvested, the quality of that product. And the soil is the biggest factor that we can improve that really is a foundation of all the better things that can be produced out of it. And ultimately, regenerative is the, the devil's in the in the definition, right? So right. Um, a lot of the uh, early regenerative movement came from grassland management, uh, holistic management of grazing ruminants, okay? So, right. you know, um, changing from uh, setting a pasture for all summer to moving them every day is, is what they did, okay? And they were able to reduce the one time a year they sprayed a broadleaf herbicide, and they were able to reduce the... 40 to 100 pounds of urea they put on the pasture. And voila, they're regenerative, right? There isn't, right. no offense to our, our grassland beef producers, but there isn't a lot to it. So now when you get to integrating row crops. Well, this into is the intense. Re- into the re- yeah, it's intense because you have irrigation decisions, you have uh, pollination decisions, you have uh, nutrient timing decisions and all those things. So if you approach regenerative from... Oh, just don't do anything and let it grow. 
and and don't coach a farmer through that and you're coming from that context of a, a midwest or or grasslands type of area you're setting a farmer up in california for failure so you yeah, really and I think have that's to what's happening look at the context with, yeah and i think that's the frustrating thing that we're starting to see is there's a lot of people jumping into our space in agriculture um, make it sound like it's my own play box and play um, sandbox here. But you really look at, you know, there's a lot of people coming in to say, hey, we can help you with sustainable agriculture or regenerative agriculture. And it's frustrating because they don't have an understanding of what, you know, farmers go through. They don't realize how tough it can be to actually make profit. And we are price takers as farmers. We don't get to say, hey, this is where we're at. We're not all at the farmer's market saying, hey, I want $3.50 for this head of cabbage now. Um, we have to work within the bounds of commodities. And so how do we do better jobs with a limited um, outcome or a limited price scale for quality? Because that's not always valued at the level that it should be. So I think things will be changing over the next, you know, five years very quickly as far as how people value the quality that, you know, higher Mm -hmm. quality soil can produce a better product, significantly better. So really, it's, it's at regenerative farming is all about outcomes-based. And outcomes would, would uh, not only apply to yield and quality on the output side, but also implies what you took to get there, right? So what was the total mm-hmm. energy input? What was the total carbon input? What was the total labor input, the water input to make that? So you've got efficiency of product over input. And right. so the outcome base, what, what you look at is that let's get to, rather than conventional commodity uh, fertilizer inputs in large quantities, even though it's cheap per unit, how can we get something that's more expensive per unit, but the efficiency is so great that the efficiency as a cost per unit is better? So we're, we're doing less total impact on the land and, and, and those kind of things, but providing a much better output. Or looking at oh, a great ex- go ahead. A great example of that is like with irrigation. So water is like one of our biggest challenges here in the Central Valley, the quality and the quantity of what we have. And so you look at when we can communicate the efficiency of just water. So for almonds or pistachios or any other crop, it's how many pounds of a product am I able to produce off every acre inch of water applied? So for almonds, can I produce? 3,000 pounds of almonds on 30 inches of water. So I roughly would then would have 10 or um, 300 pounds per acre inch of water applied. So no, sorry, 100 pounds per acre inch. So that's an efficiency metric that we're looking at. So if I'm producing 4,000 pounds on 80 inches, well, then all of a sudden my efficiency factor is way down. Do I even have the water? Do I even have the availability to put that on? And that reality is no. So how do we help, you know, the consumer understand how efficient we can really be? And soil is that thing that makes the biggest difference there. Because I know I can produce those amounts. I can produce 3,000 pounds on 30 inches of water. But I have to have a soil that's in the good enough shape to be able to produce that. And we do those things. But, you know, how do you make a plan for a grower and say, hey, we might be at um, 2,800 pounds and using 40 inches of water. Well, how do we help them see, hey, what are the next steps we have to do to improve that? How do we reduce salts? How do we help this plant deal with some of those challenges? And as a whole system, make little tweaks across the whole board to make everything hum like it should. It's just like running an engine. Right. And and really, back to the, the outcome-based approach of regenerative is different than the input-based approach of organic. So organic mm-hmm. is essentially has has devolved today into essentially input approved inputs uh, to grow or a crop conventionally. So rather than having synthetic inputs, we have organic inputs and naturally occurring or <laughs> close to, depending on who is on the list, to mimic conventional farming. But really regenerative, what we're looking at is we're using synthetic inputs, but at a much lower rate at a much more efficient rate to get a overall better outcome at the end of the day. So it's really, uh, one is a, is a list of no's and one is a list of, yes, this is what we did. And I, I think that's interesting. So what you're doing stands on its own today. 
right? Because it's economically feasible and those kind of things. Talk a little bit about how you think the farmer could get additional value points off of what they're doing by planting cover crops. You know, he's creating ecosystem services for pollinators. He's sequestering carbon into the ground. He's creating uh, diversity and, and less temperature, essentially, off the soil. You know, you and I have seen it mm-hmm. as far as the temperature moderation when you have a cover crop out there. You don't get 180-degree soil temperature during the day and 50 at night. And, and how do you... What are some of those ways that you think a farmer not only is going to get paid for that commodity today, but how you could see he or she could gain from the extra uh, things that they're creating that benefits everyone? Yeah, I think, you know, we all love stories, right? We love hearing someone's personal story. We love hearing, you know, ideas that are communicated through parables. And so when I look at this, it's like we just as growers, I know we hear this over and over and over again, but, you know, we do have to do a better job of communicating our story to the public, The especially in California, where we have the voting majority in two major areas that really have no connection to agriculture whatsoever. They can Google it or they watch a documentary on it. And so therefore they understand what we do, but it's only through a short period of of video or whatever it is. So how do we do a better job of telling our story of why cover crops make an impact and the life that it brings to the soil, the other um, insects, the predators, the beneficials, and just that whole life cycle that is happening because of how we make a little change. So when we can tell a better story and actually get people excited about it, bring them to the farm or bring the farm to them through whatever platform. It doesn't matter which social media site it is or whatever. It just, it has to be us as growers communicating that through great marketing, through great videos. And there's a lot of, a lot of really neat videos that I've seen that communicate, you know, the passion that people have in the field. It communicates what they're doing. But I think the element that's missing there is, you know, helping people see a consistent unified message of what we're trying to achieve in the field as far as improving soil, improving lives of the people who are not only on the farm doing the work, but also the people that are consuming the products that we produce. And so how is it that doing the right thing will make life better? And I think sometimes that message is lost inevitably. So creating a message that can connect with people that say, hey, I want to be a part of that, and I'm willing to, on this type of commodity thing, to go ahead and we're asking them to give a little more, right? Or we have to ask, document the other services and and sell for carbon credits or sell for, you know, uh, water savings or you know, create multiple, either you have to get more value out of the commodity that you're growing, or you have to stack revenue streams within that same acre. That's, that's the mm-hmm. two ways that we have to um, get even more or capture more of the value that, that farmers are creating. Yeah. I think, you know, there's so many things, you know, so stacking enterprises. I know that's something that is very big and we've talked a lot about that in the past, not only you and I money, but, you know, as companies like how do we take several different enterprises and put them on the same piece of land to generate one more revenue, but also be able to have these systems working together to where people can actually see it um, as a system like it was designed. That's really exciting for people to see that because that's not something that's done very commonly. Um, That's there's a lot of opportunity that we can communicate that message. And then just also being able to have people involved with you know, the pace of what agriculture truly is, help them see what we do, how we do it and how seasonal everything is. It's just, for me, it's fun to show people that have no ag background, um, a tour on a farm that is just for them to see what we do. Usually inevitably everybody is just awestruck with how complex everything is. And usually they walk away with wow, I didn't know your tractors were cost so much money. And so it's those kind of things that, you know, people love understanding different industries. And so the more we can do, the more we can educate, the more interest that we're going to get and hopefully have a more educated voting populace that will understand what we're trying to do. So slowly change the uh, political climate. So to, to kind of wrap things up here, uh, for those that are listening, how do you see your yourself, your team, your key role 
in accelerating uh, the adoption of soil health principles in the future? And where do you see um, the future headed for, for your, you and your team at, at California Ag Solutions? I think we continue to see... Um, so where we are right now will probably be different than where we're going to be at three years and five years from now. How we sell products, how we support the ideas that we've got. So we keep learning new things, right? So five years ago, we didn't really have a great grasp on how we did no-till or how we did um, different cover crops in different fields. There's a lot of new things five years ago that we saw on the horizon now we're putting all those things into practice. Like we're getting pretty good at how we do no-till. We're getting really good at putting cover crops in situations that, you know, a lot of people thought, oh, that's impossible. How are you going to do harvest? Or that's impossible. You don't have the time or the water to do it. But we've accomplished that. And I think having a team of people that have a passion to do the things that people tell them they can't do, that's fun. So when you have people that are motivated by someone telling them, no, you can't do that. And then they love to prove them wrong. That's important. That is so key. And so when we see people um, current day telling us, oh, you can't do that. Those are the, those will be the things that we have gotten really good at three years from now, five years from now, because we have people that are motivated to make things thrive. And those things, honestly, could be more cover crops in all kinds of fields where uh, growing situations where we don't have much water. I think that's probably the biggest thing is people say, well, we don't have the water to do that. Well, it takes a whole lot less water to grow a cover crop than you really think. Yeah. And especially in your scenario, you can grow it sometimes on the, on the winter rains and uh, actually use some of that winter rain instead of have it running off on, in those years that we do have rain. So. Yeah, it's interesting. It's all about the local context. It's all about that distance between the ears that you have to deal with uh, on and how each person is an individual and how it's adopted. So, anything uh, anything else comes to mind that you'd like to share with folks today before we before we head our ways and get our boots in the field? I'm just excited to see where this uh, whole adventure is going to go. There's really no limit on what we can do, other than yeah us thinking that we can't do it because of someone telling us we can't keep pushing forward. And yeah, there'll be a lot more challenges, no doubt. I would expect those, but that just means more opportunity to get better. And that's really what Ag Emerge is all about, is bringing together individuals like yourself, farmers, thought leaders, and and the emerging ag technologies and looking at how are these all going to work together? Because quite frankly, we don't know. But if if we if we bring everybody together, I think there's an opportunity that we can all be more successful because we've we've all learned from each other in in each one of our respective areas and can really make it happen in the field. Yeah, I just look for wherever someone's telling me that's crazy, run after that and try to make it work. Great. <laughs> He's always up for a challenge. Thank you, Silas. We really appreciate your time today. And uh, yeah, looking forward to uh, what the next next crazy idea will be. Cool. Well, thank you guys so much. It's been a lot of fun. Thanks, Silas. You know, that was a power-packed episode, but it really brings to light the nuances of designing an effective system by getting in the field and really understanding what's happening in the soil. I appreciate how Silas and his team are working with growers and really being those boots on the ground. Identifying the principles, systems, practices that work is key to solving those challenges facing our operations today. And as Silas said, what we're trying to achieve in the field is not only improving soil, but improving lives of the people who not only are on the farm doing the work, but also the people that are consuming the products that we produce. We hope you've enjoyed listening. Have a great day. 